we need to solve a problem, we go and purchase hardware, software, systems, etc. And in order to, to achieve the goal, in order to solve the need, we have to rely on the supply chain. And that's why the bad guys know that. And that's why the bad guys have one of the several hundreds of uh, vectors that the bad guys use, including nation states, is things like devices, hardware, components. How often have we heard about backdoors being built into even, even very trusted items? In fact, the United States government itself is on record to have, over the past 10 years or so, intercepted, let's say, shipping of network devices, altered the firmware and then repackaged and, and, and sent them on. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HIP Podcast. Third-party risk is pretty much a daily topic for most people, even though they don't realize it. They use the phrase supply chain. We're all using it's the supply chain as an explanation or excuse. Oh, I'm sorry, your Christmas present is going to make it in time. It's the supply chain. Well, third-party risk and the supply chain are inextricably connected to each other. What's it all about? What can we do about it for our organizations? Joining me today is Heinrich Schmidt. Heinrich is Sempris's deputy CISO. He spent over a decade and a half responsible for end-to-end security over some of the world's largest financial institutions, where he hand-built role-based access and technical IT security policy libraries, many of which are still active today. He was also one of the original Active Directory testers digging into things like Kerberos and LSA. He's been a code debugger responsible for triaging bug check servers across the planet. And he's also a single dad of a great and happy nine-year-old son. Heinrich is an active member of the CSA's Zero Trust Experts Group and a certified systems auditor. Welcome, Heinrich. Sure, thank you. Yeah, Heinrich and I spend a lot of time talking about security and risk on a daily basis. And so I it's thought it would just be a great idea to really dig into it a little bit here, I'm not the only benefactor for our conversations. So help us understand, for starters, what's the buzz about third-party risk? What's it, what's it all about? We, we're all very, very conscious of a lot of discussion around the supply chain issues and the security risks around the technologies that we, that we use every day, things like our cell phones and our laptops and, and our systems and our et cetera. The history with the supply chain and third-party risk is that it's always been around, but the, the things have changed. So let me explain. 50 years ago, if, if you talked about being a European or, or a North American or you know, someone of a, of a particular nation, the anomalies were very easy to spot. So uh, consequently, if, if there was an issue with uh, or a risk related to a component that, that your system was built on, it was very easy to see. Um, as an example, the organizations responsible for securing infrastructures, for securing nations, etc., um, were fully capable and very often would find pretty easily the standouts like people who were spying. This was a human thing. The, nothing was computer-based or very little was computer-based. 
since then things have changed. You don't just spy somebody walking in or breaking in or breaking the glass in your office and stealing papers or catch somebody who's taking a flight overseas that has a rolled up sensitive document in their back pocket or, or in the lining of their suitcase. Now everything is connected. I can as soon connect to somebody in, in, in Moscow as I can to someone in San Francisco. And therefore, um, the lay of the land has changed significantly. There was a time when you know systems were built homogeneously. Uh, there was a small company in Milwaukee. They would build certain things and you would buy it from them. Now, that small company in Milwaukee, whether they're small or big, is probably building with components from five to a hundred companies. And those, those companies can be spread across the globe and, and mostly are. If you think about our cell phone chips and et cetera, memory chips, uh, CPUs, much of that technology, even if it's designed in the United States, is created overseas in factories overseas. So you trust who you rely on. If, you, if, if you're using a piece of technology like the cell phone I'm holding in my hands or, or the technologies that you and I are using to communicate here, we are putting an implicit trust on all the, the players that have that put those technologies together. The headset, the, the computer, the display, the mouse, the keyboard, everything that is there. We are implicitly trusting it. So who are the players in this the actors in this situation, in this, I guess, maybe this play even. It's a good analogy, analogy the, the analogy of a play. Um, the, the risk landscape is basically very much like a play. So it used to be that we had, you know, um, an, a finite small number of players, but now we have so many. We have the end user who may or may not be an insider threat. We have the, uh, the IT infrastructure players who are responsible for securing the organization as well as the players, as well as our customers, as well as to some level um, also the, the, the company, uh, excuse me, the countries that we live in. And then the world in, in general, right? Um, there, there can be significant risks to, let's say, the Western world. Um, with some of the, the, the activities that we see on a daily basis from nation states. So the bad guys have changed how they operate because they have more tools. And by nature of our technological advancements, everything is, is internet-based, they have more tools to use. We have several aspects of this then. So we have, this encompasses both hardware, because as we, we look at, you talked about the companies, a company in Milwaukee uh, and you know, what you could count on coming from one company and made there locally in Milwaukee is sourced from all over the place. And of course, as, as these systems have become incredibly sophisticated, you, you get bits in, from everywhere, from hardware, which obviously also applies. And as we're talking about in the subject of this podcast is around software as well. In evaluating the risk of supply chain attacks, supply chain security and how that fits in and how how is for example how has the US tried to adapt to help mitigate some of that or at least if not mitigate it help companies be aware of what's going on instead of it being every man for themselves well the united states has i, I remember being at um, rsa conference i don't know a decade ago or so when Secretary Chertoff was appointed under the Bush Jr. administration as the first security czar, cybersecurity czar of the United States. And I was very hopeful that that happened at the time. Now, I'll be honest and say that 
I don't think that that went where I thought it was going to go. I'm not clear that we have achieved a stronger, much stronger security posture or risk posture than we had back then. However, you know, the, the U.S. government is driving CISA, for instance, which I'm seeing really good things come out of CISA to try and help the, the business world and the, the consumer in the United States to, to sort of crowdsource security. This plays into the question of can you, can you go it alone or is it better to crowdsource and communicate and share? Which is difficult when you're talking about competitive advantage. You know, uh, we may not, you know, large players may not want to share too much. But there's also legislation now that's, that's been coming in and increasingly will, I think, will grow that requires cooperation and collaboration between business and government. So those are things that can help us. Isn't it intrinsically, what, there is the intrinsic tension between capitalism and minimizing risk, isn't there? Where capitalism is, pure capitalism is the lowest bottom dollar? <laughs> I'm not an economist, but concept of capitalism plays into this where if you look at things from a purely capitalistic perspective and, and how you can get that bottom dollar and how you can maximize your profits in the moment, remember that the, one of the underlying principles of, of this capitalist society or a capitalism in general is, is to make money now. It's not to make money in 10 years or 20 or 50 years, right? So the, the shorter to midterm is more, more important. So it is very easy to forego controls, due diligence, etc. And, you know, let's be honest and let's be fair. Um, if you have a, a thing to do, if, if there's a need to fulfill, let's think about, for instance, a, a, a medical facility, a hospital, something like that. They have a need for a specific CT machine. That machine may be sourced and, and comprised of several components which nobody has checked for security, right? It's Wi-Fi connected. It has access probably to uh, the network. It probably has, nobody's really looked at the security posture or the risk posture or the controls over that device. And yet it's there to save lives. So it's not just capitalism, it's expediency, right? We need to solve a problem. We go and purchase hardware, software, systems, etc. In And in order to, to achieve the goal, in order to solve the need, we have to rely on the supply chain. And that's why the bad guys know that. And that's why the bad guys have one of the several hundreds of uh, vectors that the bad guys use, including nation states, is things like devices, hardware, components. How often have we heard about backdoors being built into even, even very trusted items. In fact, the United States government itself is on record to have, over the past 10 years or so, intercepted, let's say, shipping of network devices, altered the firmware, and then repackaged and, and, and sent them on. We certainly see a constant tension going back and forth between government organizations and private industry where government organizations or law enforcement organizations want to put in intentional backdoors. That seems like that often does not end up so well, does it? So the bad guys learn from, from the things that the good guys do as well. There's great difficulty with this because on the one hand, one has to weigh the value of, say, preventing a terrorist attack, potential terrorist attack, by allowing a trustworthy government watchdog to have access to private information. We have in the United States and across Europe, especially with GDPR, most jurisdictions have significant protections over private information, and it's growing. And the reason it's growing is because of exploits and experiences that 
the world has. Data is, is in fact accessed inappropriately and abused. So therefore government responds by imposing things like GDPR and other requirements and controls. So the concept of backdoors and giving access to who we think is trusted. The Chinese government is a great example of this. The Chinese government requires backdoors, right? We know this. They, they require backdoors. Um, this is one of the push-pulls that we have with our organizations like Apple and others that, that attempt to operate in markets like, like China or, or other who have significantly different laws than we do about private information. So the problem is that, yes, if you are a Chinese citizen and you trust your government and they have access to your information, that information is still out there. It's still available. And you know, if we think about an Edward Snowden scenario, for instance, where Edward Snowden was highly trusted inside the, the United States um, secret governmental organizations, the NSA, and abused that power to exfiltrate massive amounts of information. And guess where it ended up? For whatever reason, Edward Snowden landed up in Russia, and most likely he brought his information with him. That information was brought straight out of the core, the heart of the United States government. So when I speak with people that say, you know, yeah, it's the government, we can trust them. It's not just the government, because there are humans in government, at the very least. So there's that. Right. Well, and there's the other dimension of it, and we, you and I have spoken about this in the past, is the hardware that we use every day and the fact, and this ties into the capitalism aspect of it, the hardware that we use every day is largely manufactured overseas. You know, Korea manufactures a lot of electronic components. China manufactures a lot of electronic components. You don't really find a whole lot of electronic components being manufactured in South Africa or the United States or, you know, such. The technology, for instance, if you, if you want to buy a laptop today, where is it coming from? <laughs> it's not probably coming from the United States. Right. So who's looking at that? Who's evaluating that? Right. Who's doing a full third-party evaluation, supply chain evaluation on that? Now, there's two sides to supply chain. The one is the fact that there are container ships sitting in the harbors of Los Angeles, miles and miles and miles of, of these ships, reportedly, right, that are not delivering. That's a different problem from the security risk issue. That's a simple supply chain, you know, is impacted by several factors. And so we don't get the products that we need. But there's the, the side that we're discussing, the, the security and the risk side of it, is that we have to rely on a packaged product. If you think about it like, um, you know, if you go around to 50 different people and you, and you get each of them to make a certain component, um, it's very possible that one of them may make a, an inferior product or a compromised product or a buggy product or something like that, or, or even malicious, right? And if you, if you compile that into a single, all those components into a single product, you're going to end up with the described problem here. You know, you used the analogy earlier of a play, and of course that makes me think of, of a play and actors, and it immediately makes me think of Shakespeare. But in, in Shakespeare, there's usually a good guy. And I almost find myself wondering, is it more closer to Reservoir Dogs, where everybody is attacking everybody else Everybody has got something in this game to, that they try to gain out of it. That's probably that might be a little bit severe. It's a worrying analogy because open societies tend to have more of a risk associated with them than closed societies. So, from a boots on the ground, this is all very well and good. What can an organization do to manage their third-party risk? So, I always start with suggesting and 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 often if i don't have a lot of time i will say just cover the basics if you think about things like the equifax breach and 
hundreds of other well-published breaches and exposure of private data, et cetera, et cetera. San Diego's uh, Unified School District, for instance, uh, a couple of years ago had a massive breach, which was based on a very, very simple thing. Someone who was over-empowered, someone had too many rights, clicked on an email, a phishing email. That email ended up through the standard mechanisms um, of malware, ended up giving access to all the data of every employee and every um, every uh, school child historically to this person. And that person um, exfiltrated it. So the basics, more important than firewalls, more important than most other controls in an organization is controlling your email because the one of the major threat vectors, very few, very few bad actors are going to try and hack you through a backdoor on a chip. It will happen, but it's very rare. Most likely, the, the exploit is going to come in through email. But with regards to supply chain, what can we do with regards to supply chain? Similarly, focus on the basics, right? So keep in mind that identity and access management is a very simple basic control that you as an organization and you as a human being at home can apply. So am I an administrator on my own system? Are my children administrators on their systems? Are all my uh, hundreds of thousands of employees, are they administrators on their own systems? I will tell you that several years ago, I was working for a very large aerospace company. And that company had just implemented a policy where they had removed to the chagrin of most technical employees, they had removed local admin rights on, on all their PCs. A virus campaign came through and it had almost no effect. And the reason was the virus didn't have access to anything because it was operating under the context of the user. So least privilege is really important. Um, having antivirus and anti-malware and phishing controls is very important. And I should have probably mentioned even before all of those patching. When we look back at Equifax, a very, very simple thing that was not done there was patching. It, it sounds like a very basic thing, but if you don't patch your systems, they're vulnerable. And it is possible that someone may exploit that, um, that vulnerability. Separation of duties. If you have global administrators or enterprise administrators or something high, domain admins, somebody that has significant privileges. Those accounts need to be very, very carefully controlled, often reviewed, and also separated from other duties. For instance, do you use your domain administrator account, the same account, or your global admin account to send and receive emails? It's probably not a very good idea because if a phishing email comes in or if there is some other, speaking about supply chain, some other backdoor or malware in, in drivers or a component in, in FOSS, free and open source software, if there's a, a, a vulnerable library that's been exploited and you are operating under the context of an elevated user, then whoever comes into that system is going to have the rights that you have under the same context. This also ties into from a uh, on-premises environment administrative tiering. Uh, you know, so the uh, the concept of if you're a tier zero administrator, you don't use credentials uh, that are designed to administer that high tier towards uh, administering a lower tier. 
so that if a threat actor gains control of a lower tier, they can't harvest your credentials and immediately move up a tier or gain administrative control entirely. So that's correct, Sean. Um, now, beyond the basics, which we've just discussed extensively, right? There's also some more complicated stuff. For instance, um, zero trust is, I'm very, very happy that CISA and the US government are, and, and by the way, I think other governments in the world as well, are taking up, finally taking up zero trust as a model. The United States government is very vocal about this through NIST, et cetera, where zero trust is becoming a very, very important concept. I, I believe, um, I may be wrong, but I believe I, I recall that um, our current President Biden um, made a statement about zero trust that, that from thence on, we shall do everything based on zero trust a few months ago. Um, zero trust is a brilliant concept. Uh, John Kindervag is, is somebody that I know I've met. Um, he, is, he is somebody to, to follow, he's someone to look at um, closely and, and, and listen to what he has to say and read what he has, has written. Um, he is the inventor of zero trust, essentially. Um, the concept of zero trust simply is that I don't trust anyone or anything or any network packet before I have vetted it or them. Now, of course, this is not this is not an interpersonal thing. This is not us at our home or friends or whatever. But um, the concept of zero trust, for instance, um, applies to supply chain, um, which here's the sad thing. If you truly apply zero trust to supply chain, we're all broken because there is no application to zero trust of zero trust to supply chain currently. That's where we need to go. We need to go where there is a model where even the drivers the software components, the applications, the libraries, everything that we do is wrapped around a zero trust uh, cocoon, right? It's wrapped inside a zero trust cocoon. So that even if it does something that we don't want it to do, and by the way, there are some innovative companies out there. I'm not gonna mention names, but I've been I'm talking most recently with some very innovative companies. Um, one of them uh, in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley actually, um, who focus on this, wrapping libraries in a zero trust cocoon um, innovative concepts that are out there so again this is not basic right these things are much more complicated um, further to that Sean look at your options right so for instance if you have 10 employees um, it may be completely viable for someone to manage the risk posture the security controls over your infrastructure maybe you have one two three servers five servers ten servers it might be possible. However, if you have 280,000 employees and you have 60,000 servers of um, home, uh, heterogeneous kinds, it's extremely complicated to manage the, um, the controls around all of that. Can you imagine the number of um, applications, um, allowed applications? If we think about an, a large organization, and what it requires to run that organization. We have everywhere from office applications to HR applications, personnel applications. We have um, anything you can think of. And these days it becomes more complicated because we have to trust SaaS vendors in many cases for some of those applications. Vetting all of that becomes a significant burden on the average uh, organization. So, so what are your options? You, you can. You can buy and maintain firewalls and ensure that you keep them up to date. And as has been published over and over and over, even highly trusted organizations that uh, or uh, suppliers of firewalls and other hardware that are supposed to keep us safe, uh, IDS, IPS, even those have sometimes backdoors, bugs, vulnerabilities, exploits um, that are often actively exploited. So 
I'm not saying not to do it yourself, but I'm saying that it's very complicated to, to go it alone. Um, another option is something like operating in a SaaS environment. If you operate in a SaaS environment where things like um, antivirus, anti-malware, uh, event management, incident uh, alerts, SIM, all those things are uh, homogeneously handled, that could be an option for you and it could take a burden off your organization. Make sense? Yes, and it and it brings to mind a couple of analogies that have, have have sprung up for me before. One of the aspects of that is the driving towards or the movement towards uh, fewer vendors, fewer platforms, more integration, so that you theoretically at least have integrated risk uh, mitigation, threat response, uh, and and the other is you know let's just use something like. The, the the vulnerability du jour, log4j, and when an, an exploit becomes available, the asymptotic increase in attacks as a result of it, that an organization may or may not be staffed to try to, to withstand. And, right. you know, is the analogy that I've used before is a, it's, it's sort of medieval where you know, the, 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 the villagers or the small business owners gather up close against the big castle where they can be under the protection of the archers at the castle, you know, where you use the capabilities of extremely large service providers with sophisticated security stacks or sophisticated security teams in hopes of, because most small and medium-sized organizations are simply not staffed and we know <laughs> we know what the market is to be able to find people like that. If you want a job, you know, get a cybersecurity reputation or a cybersecurity degree. So often less is more and simplifying things can be a very, very good way. Uh, so, so here's, let, let's talk, let's be, I like to be ridiculous sometimes. Let's think about ridiculously. Let's imagine I run a, a company of um, 250 employees and um, I have um, two tiers of, of, of um, um, firewall shelves, you know, um, I have an internet facing, I have an internal shelf and maybe I have something in between. I have some border gateway devices. These things are very expensive, right? And they're expensive to maintain and they require personnel to maintain. Um, contractually as well, as well, right? So uh, service contracts. So already I'm talking about, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars here. Let's imagine I'm running this 250 person company. Um, let's, let's be ridiculous. Worst case scenario, each one of those devices could have flaws, uh, backdoors, vulnerabilities, and can be introduced with every new firmware update and can be introduced with every new driver update. At the same time, that same company can also have vulnerabilities in every application that they use and every operating system that they use. So if you think about it from, from that perspective, worst case scenario, you, your organization that you think is secure could, I understand it's a ridiculous thought, but I like to go to ridiculous lengths to, to, to illustrate this point. You could look like Swiss cheese, right? Now, to your point, if we, for instance, focus our uh, entire posture behind um, SaaS, right? And um, the only way that you can get into my organization is by sending me a, one of my users a phishing email. That phishing email is, if I've set it up correctly, if I use least privilege, then 
it's going to gain very little access. It can it can gain potentially as much access to my uh, my my end user's laptop as the end user has. But if that's not administrative, locally administrative, it's unable to install a malware application to run, right? Um, in addition, in SaaS, you would have in that instance, um, theoretically before the email even came, came into that laptop, you would have a very, very high level of certainty that the, the SaaS vendor and whichever SaaS protections you have installed um, will have caught that, right? Quarantined it, at least alerted you, and you can then, you, the IT and information security departments can then follow up on those events. So the landscape changes, Sean. Um, it moves away from, from hiring people who are firewall experts, who are specific types of information security experts that can handle, build and handle a SIM for you, et cetera. It, it moves to more uh, dealing with the SaaS vendor and how that SaaS vendor does things, learning their interfaces, learning how to deal with their alerts. And so you become more of a consumer as opposed to a provider of security, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And that is one of the key aspects of IT in the last 10 years. As IT becomes more of a broker rather than an originator. Thanks for this conversation, Heinrich. I think that one of the things that I hear out of this is that even though the landscape changes on what seems to be a daily basis, new threats keep popping up, from the ownership viewpoint, it still once again comes back to the basics. Patch yep. your systems, yep. use least privilege, pay attention to alerts, monitor, protect your email. I was having a conversation with one of our incident response experts, and he has like uh, 15 years of experience as a red teamer. And he said, you know, people tend to focus on the really fancy advanced stuff, but the threat actors want to use the simplest means to get in to get what they want. It's just a means to an end. And it's not necessarily the most sophisticated because it doesn't have to be because people still have to do these basics that we keep talking about. So the bad news is more critical than ever to put these basics in place. The good news is that it's still the basics, the same basics that you know what to do uh, and you just have to go off and do it. Sean, I'd like to add one thing if I may. I've mentioned this a few times. So if you look at, at a breach, what happens when there's a breach, when there's, you know, let's say you have, for instance, um, you have either data that's been exfiltrated or we haven't even at all talked about the concept of somebody encrypting your entire network or your, all your systems and, and requiring, requiring a ransom, right? What I like to say is if you consider what can happen, if you, whoever you are, if you're responsible for the security posture of your organization, even if you're not, even if you're higher up, if you're, for instance, a CEO of an organization and you look at what can happen if ransomware locks and encrypts all your stuff. And by the way, it doesn't only do that. It very often will also exfiltrate your information so that even when you pay the ransom, you still later have to pay more ransom. And that information is in the wild no matter what you do. There's no such thing as proving that the information has been deleted, right? So if you think about what can happen in a ransomware or exploit scenario, right, active exploit scenario, think about how much money that would cost you, 
Is it 50,000? Is it 5 million? That's the kind of money that you really ought to be putting towards preventing it. Yeah, this is the uh, fighting against human nature, uh, essentially, is what we're talking about. Right. Well, would you rather spend the money up front or would you rather spend it later on? And everyone hopes that the bus is not going to trample them. But it does happen. Right. It does happen. Well, thank you, Heinrich. Very much appreciate it. Great conversation thank as always. Sure. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.